This is Speaker Series Rewind, a podcast by High Alpha. In this series, we revisit our favorite discussions from High Alpha Speaker Series events. Welcome to our monthly speaker series. And each week, we'll introduce you to the industry leaders, successful entrepreneurs, and investors running everything from breakout SaaS companies to professional racing teams and beyond. I am really, really excited for this conversation. You'll hear ideas that will inspire you to overcome obstacles. There's no construction manual when you start your first company. Become a better leader and try new things. When I see a new product category that someone says, like, it's the dumbest thing ever. Oh, okay, that sounds interesting. Because after all, good leaders are always learning. You are not expected to know the answer. Instead, you're expected to learn the answer. Get ready to build better habits. We are what we repeatedly do. And embrace conflict. Conflict is healthy. Conflict should be expected. With inspirational interviews from High Alpha. Welcome back to Speaker Series Rewind, a podcast hosted by High Alpha. My name is Emma Ryan, and I'm on the marketing team here at High Alpha. For those of you new to the show, we revisit High Alpha Speaker Series events. In season two, we're giving you a peek behind the curtain into the world of venture capital through conversations with leading investors. In today's episode, we're revisiting our Speaker Series event from November 2016 with Alex Bard. At the time of the interview, Alex was the CEO of Campaign Monitor. Since then, he has gone on to pursue new opportunities at Redpoint Ventures as partner and managing director. Alex and High Alpha managing partner Scott Dorsey sat down to discuss Alex's entrepreneurial journey, competing with large incumbents, and developing meaningful core values. With that, let's get into the episode. We're absolutely privileged to have Alex Bard with us today. As Christian mentioned, Alex, Alex flew out from San Francisco to be with us today. He's an amazing person, entrepreneur, uh, tech leader. We had the great opportunity to get to know each other, both by having companies that were acquired by Salesforce. And Alex has gone on to be really doing great things, leading Campaign Monitor. He's so kind enough to come in today. And we're going to have just a very free-flowing conversation. So I've got topics and stories I'm hoping to pull out. But I also you know, encourage all of you guys to ask questions. And I think you'll really enjoy hearing Alex's story and also philosophies on entrepreneurship, leadership, client success, all kinds of good topics. So please join me in giving Alex a really warm welcome. This is awesome. I, I haven't been in India in about seven years. I came for the Indy 500 with a, with a good friend of mine who grew up here. So it's good to see the, the city again and how much it's grown up, actually, in such a short amount of time. It sure has. No, yeah. thanks, Alex. So really happy to have you here. Uh, so Alex has founded four companies? Yep. Is that right? Okay, super. Why don't you maybe start with just a little bit of your upbringing and background, and we'll pull on a couple of those entrepreneurial stories to get started. Yeah, happy to. I, I kind of think about my professional career in, in a couple of chapters. I've got my entrepreneurial chapter, which is you know, part of starting these four companies, and, and most recently being an executive at Salesforce and now running Campaign Monitor is kind of like a fake executive, so to speak, kind of an entrepreneur in executive's clothing. Um, I think a lot of my drive for entrepreneurship came out of my, my parents, my family. You and I talked yeah, about please, this a little please. bit. I was actually not born in America. I was born in Russia, and, and my parents immigrated to America. So kind of the immigrant story of parents sacrificing on behalf of their kids so that their kids have a you know, potential to have a better life. And so they did that, and we moved to America. We moved to New York, and we had a very humble beginning. We had very little, if anything, actually. And, and through really hard work and, and perseverance from my parents, which I think I you know, picked up through osmosis, we were able to, you know, attain the American dream. And ultimately, they were able to buy a house on Long Island. 
and, and we moved there and, and I got a, you know, kind of a great education, met some amazing people and that set me off, I think, on my career with a very entrepreneurial spirit. And as I mentioned to you, the, the first job I actually really had out of college was not a startup. This was in the mid-90s, so the internet was kind of in its early days. My first job was on Wall Street in the, on the 73rd floor of the World Trade Center. So if you remember the Twin Towers, I was on the 73rd floor of World Trade Number 2. And I was going through that experience, and there's a part of it that I love, which is kind of, it exercised my left brain. I'm very mathematical, and, and Wall Street and finance is very mathematical. But there was a part of my brain that was atrophying, which is the right side of my brain, which is really creative, because you're not allowed to be actually creative on Wall Street, it turns out. <laughs> you go to jail if you are. And so a buddy of mine from junior high school, high school, and college called me up and said, hey, I've got this idea uh, for an internet company to build kind of chat and bulletin boards community that websites could deploy to build an environment very much like AOL had at the time. And I felt like I had nothing to lose. And it was, you know, I think for me, a really lucky moment in time. Nobody had more experience on the internet than I did, really, because it was so new. And it was an opportunity to go and exercise that right side of my brain, and that kind of started me on my journey. That's awesome. That's awesome. Alex was just sharing with us a Mark Cuban story, which is, which is quite amazing. And I think as I was hearing the story, what comes to mind for me is just, you know, kind of the courage you need as an early stage entrepreneur, you know, to take risks and be confident in what you're building and try to assemble investors that you think can really help you take the business to the next level. And your story with Cuban is amazing. If you don't mind, maybe you could share that. Yeah. So at the, at the time I was living in San Diego, I moved from New York to San Diego, which was one step closer to the gold rush in San Francisco, but not exactly there. And I started a company with a couple of my friends, the same friends that I started a few companies with, you know, kind of along the way. And the company was called GUI. And it was in, we started the company in 2004. We raised no money. And for about a year and a half, we were building this beautiful in-browser kind of platform for cons consuming data and for email and, and news and, and kind of all these things. And I used to read religiously Mark Cuban's blog called The Blog Maverick, because I thought he wrote some really interesting pieces. And I had a lot of admiration for kind of how externally it appeared he lived his life and the things that he did uh, professionally and then personally. He went and fulfilled a childhood dream and bought the Dallas Mavericks. And so one day I decided to just try to email him through the blog Maverick. I mean, the lesson there is you never know who you can get to right. and it's 100% going to be a no if you don't try. And so I kind of thought, what do I have to lose? And so I emailed him through the blog Maverick and kind of commented on something that he was talking about and said that I'd really admired him and would love to share my company with him. And, and that kicked off an exchange through email over a few months with me and Mark Cuban, which ultimately culminated in Mark saying, hey, I'm going to be in LA for a Mavericks game, and I could come down and see you. To which I was, I mean, blown away, delighted. I said, absolutely, that would be incredible. We'd love to, to have you come by. <laughs> and, I, and I informed the entire team, all four of us. Uh, <laughs> and if I can paint you know, the picture for you, we were downtown San Diego in the gas lamp. We were above a hardware store, which has since gone out of business, and next to a psychic. That was our setting <laughs> in a tiny little, uh, tiny little office. And so I let the team know, and we were all fired up. We printed out, you know, on a printer of this little thing that said, GUI welcomes Mark Cuban. And he was meant to come at, I think it said 11. And 11 o'clock comes by, and, and no Mark Cuban. And then, you know, 11.15, no Mark Cuban. And I'm starting to pace a little bit. I wanted to go see the psychic and ask her if he was going to show up, but she wasn't there. <laughs> so, you know, now it's 11.30 and no Mark Cuban. And I, I start to realize, I don't know if I actually ever did talk to Mark Cuban because <laughs> it was only email. And I started to think that maybe I was communicating with an intern 
who actually answered Mark Cuban's emails through the blog Maverick, which makes tons of sense. Why would he do it? And at 11.30, when it seemed like all hope was lost, I was staring out the window, and a black car pulled up. And Mark Cuban stepped out, and it was amazing. You know, and he, and he comes up through the hardware store and, and rounds the bend of the psychic and comes into our little office, and we spent you know, two and a half hours together, which was kind of amazing. And at the end of the two and a half hours, he, he looked at us and said, how about I write you a check for a million and a half dollars? We had raised no money at the time, and we couldn't believe it. And he offered to be a common shareholder wow. in the company. how about that? And, I, and when I reflect back on, on kind of that two and a half hour meeting, if I were to give you guys kind of one lesson on why I think it went well, it was that there was a point in time when he challenged something that I had said, meaning he took a completely, you know, kind of contrarian viewpoint on something that I was saying that I had been kind of stating as fact. And my co-founder, Gary, who you know, really came back at him and pushed him hard instead of just kind of yielding to his viewpoint, pushed him really hard to say, no, Mark, I don't really think you're thinking about this in the way that we're thinking about it. Let me share it with you in more detail. Really kind of meaningfully pushed back. And in the moment, I was thinking to myself, shit, Gary, what are you doing? (laughs) This is Mark Cuban. But in retrospect, it was the thing that I think made Mark respect us was that we, had, we were opinion-driven, that we were opinionated, that we had a viewpoint. And even if in the moment it didn't seem like the popular viewpoint, that we would still hold fast. And so he wrote us a million and a half dollar check, not on the spot. He kind of sent it to us. He does everything by check. And we took a photocopy of it and put it up on the wall. It was Incredible. amazing. And he was your only outside investor. He was the only outside investor uh, for that company. And two years later, AOL acquired it, and Mark made a you know, nice return on his investment. Incredible. What was yeah. he like as a board member? What were board meetings like? So Mark is, I mean, I don't know if you guys watch Shark Tank or if you happen to watch any Dallas Mavericks games, but that's actually him. That's not a that character. Is yeah, that is yeah. him. He's super intense. Our board meetings, because you know the board was Mark and the four of us, <laughs> would, would happen and coincide any time with when he was coming to L.A. to watch a game. And the first board meeting I remember in like super high fidelity, because Nothing's ever happened to me quite like this. He invited us to come up to L.A., and we went to this great restaurant called the Ivy, which is apparently where a, bu- a bunch of famous people go, because as we're walking in without Mark separately, there were a bunch of you know, paparazzi taking pictures, not of us, but like waiting <laughs> to take pictures of somebody interesting. So we go in, and we have, we have kind of this late, early dinner with Mark, and then he gives us tickets to the game. He says, you know, go to Will Call and pick up tickets to come to the Mavs game, and we'll continue kind of the conversation at the Mavs game. And we're like, awesome, great. So he leaves, we finish up, and we go to the stadium, again, separately from Mark, and I go to Will Call. I have no idea what tickets he's given us. We go to Will Call, and the person behind the Will Call counter is like, you know, who's left you the tickets? And I said, Mark Cuban. (laughs) And and she looked at me and laughed and said, no, but who really left you the tickets? And I said, no, Mark Cuban. I look it up, and she did. And and again, I was nervous that he actually hadn't left tickets for us, and (laughs) we were going to be left out in the cold. But there were the tickets, and we got them, and... The tickets turned out to be right behind the team. Literally, the team, the, the Dallas Mavericks was here, and we sat right behind the team. And I just remember, I never sat so close in a basketball game in my entire life, and I grew up a big-time basketball fan. We walk down, and we sit down, and Mark, before the game come, starts, Mark walks around the team bench and comes over to us and gives us a big hug and high five, and the whole stadium's looking around and, and looking at us and going, like, who are these guys? And, it was, it was just an amazing moment. It was the best board meeting I've ever had in my life. <laughs> what was he like as a board member? Like, what, what were his hot buttons or yeah. what were areas of business advice where he really lean in? Yeah, so he was incredibly 
responsive, not super proactive, but incredibly responsive. And we kind of even talked about this. I could, and, and used email religiously. I mean, I, I could email Mark, and right after a Mavs game, he would instantly email me back with something really long and thoughtful. So I think his style was to be more reactive than proactive. But what he really did is, if he had a differing viewpoint than you on something, because I'd constantly ask him kind of strategic questions, it wasn't that he wanted you to, to change your path. It's that he wanted to see your level of conviction in the idea. If you were willing to die on the hill for something that you really fundamentally believed in, that he originally disagreed with, he would support you in that. Because the reality is, all of you guys, if you ultimately raise money or whatever the, the case might be, will be much closer to the truth of your business than your board will ever be. And so you should actually have much more information and a foundation to make the right decision, much more so than your board will ever have. And a good board recognizes that. Now, they help you see things differently. And this is what Mark did so really well. He'd push us hard. But if we believe it and had the conviction, he would support us. And in other times, he just helped us you know, recognize a blind spot that, that we didn't have. That's a huge point. That's a huge lesson right there. You know your business really better than your board members. And you want them for sounding board and guidance and advice and to challenge you. But ultimately, you've got to trust your own conviction because you and your team know the business the best. That, that's, a, that's a really powerful lesson. Okay, let's shift gears to the next company you started, Sicily, and another mark came into your life a little later <laughs> down the path with the Sicily, but this is an unbelievable story of company creation to meaningful strategic exit in a very short window of time. I think the team here would love to hear about it as well. Yeah, so, so in, when AOL acquired the, the previous company, GUI, that I talked about, that was in 2008, and I joined AOL, and instantly recognized that it was not the right environment for me, as did my co-founders. At the time, AOL was going through a meaningful transition and trying to figure out if they were you know, a media company or, or what they were doing. They brought Tim in from Google. But the, the culture at AOL was a really, again, from my perspective, a sad place to be because it was a depreciating asset and people were holding on for as long as they could versus trying to kind of change it. And, and so within a year, I left. I mean, I, I just knew straight away. And the same group of folks that I'd been starting companies with and I sat down and decided to start this new company, Assistly, which was all about kind of customer service done in a new modern way and to integrate all these new channels that were exploding in 2009, like Twitter and, and others. And so we started the company in a, literally like day one was October of 2009. And the good news about this founding team, which you know, I'll kind of give you guys another, is that we had a lot of the skills that you needed early to be able to start a business without having to hire anybody, which meant we could do it for free. The, the only expense was our own time and our own burn. We had two great technologists, myself, who's more of kind of the, the product and vision side, and then a great operating guy. And so we were able to start this company kind of in a box and run it ourselves for, for a good period of time until we proved that there was value in the product with customers. We did customer discovery really early where you know, we were embarrassed with what the product was, but we put it in front of customers and they helped us define it to where it got to something that was really interesting. And from October to January, we built. In January, we rolled it out to about 10 companies that we had gotten excited about the vision. One of them is a company that you may have or may not have heard of called uh, Bonobos. It's men's clothing, men's Absolutely. clothing right. retailer. Yes, that's right. Awesome. 
And so mm. we, what, the reason it's important to identify the, the early customers is they help you define the roadmap, but you have to identify the ones that align with kind of who you are. And they were a much more progressive company. They were really thinking about what was happening in social. They were trying to redefine customer service. And so they had a much greater risk tolerance for a company like us than a more traditionally company would have. So matching those early customers to validate your product is incredibly important. So we did that. We rolled it out. We got some, some excitement and momentum about what we were doing. Can I stop you there real quick? How, yes. How did you think about or with... Alex is also a very active angel investor, so we'll talk a little later about what Alex looks for as an investor and you know, maybe kind of a bit of the advising role you play with some companies, including Narvar, which is a, a high alpha investment as well. But when, when you started a Sisley or when you're advising early stage startups, how did you think about whether to charge or not? So, so, so interesting point on the early customers kind of aligning around risk profile and goals. How'd you think about kind of that trade-off between I need lots of customers pounding on the product, giving us feedback versus I need to monetize these relationships and show some revenue. I think we go through different financing climates. Hmm. And investors look for different things you know, at different periods of time. So, for example, the, the period of time that we're in today, business fundamentals are a lot more important than they were a few years ago when it was all about growth at all costs. Right? And so I think you have to understand the, the market a little bit. For us, when we were making that decision, we had just come out of you know, the financial kind of nuclear winter. If you remember 2008, there was kind of the global financial crisis and meltdown. In 2009, it was just starting to recover. The venture markets weren't as fertile, let's just say, as they then became a few years later. So when we thought about rolling out the product and the balance between charging and getting more customer validation and, and people using the product, it was a pretty simple decision. It was because... At the time, there was already a great company in the space called Zendesk. And we were doing a lot of things very differently than them. And we had to know that what we were doing was a 10x difference, like meaningfully different that companies would appreciate if we were to have any chance at success. Because otherwise, we would just be chasing somebody that had a meaningful head start. And that's why we didn't want to distract ourselves, because you actually have to build billing. At the time, you had to build billing, which was an engineering expense. And we didn't want to distract our customers with worrying about you know, the financials of it. What we really needed was a validation that we had something meaningfully different. And then once we did, then we rolled out billing straight away. That's awesome. How did you think about building something meaningfully different? What, what was your strategy against Zendesk? So I, I actually, I can't remember who taught me this lesson, but it's, but it's really interesting. If you think about incumbent companies that seemed in their time to dominate their space. Let's, we'll call it in kind of the modern era. And then you think about startups that came out of nowhere and disrupted these companies, and you look at what they did, they basically did the complete opposite of what the incumbent was doing to the point that the incumbent couldn't do it because it would have been too self-disruptive. So let me give you some examples to give you more fidelity. Let's start with Salesforce. Yes. When Salesforce launched, the big, oh my God, this is awesome, actually wasn't their lightweight product. Because at the time, there was a massive incumbent in Siebel and PeopleSoft. There were lots of companies that were billion, multi-billion dollar companies that were doing what Salesforce was doing. They could have easily replicated a lightweight version of their on-premise product for the cloud. Right. What they couldn't replicate was the pricing model. Because it would have completely exploded their business. 
because of how they charged licensing fees and size of deal and sales teams that they had to feed, their entire go-to-market structure could not shift to SaaS pricing. The real aha that a lot of people don't talk about was the SaaS pricing. Right. They could not replicate that. So that was one thing that Salesforce did. We'll go to another company in a totally different space, MySpace. You guys remember MySpace? Who remembers MySpace? Okay. MySpace at the time was dominating social media. And what could you do on MySpace? It was every color. It was shiny and blinking. You made it your own space. You can create a space for your cat, a dog, a band, anything you wanted to do. And that was what popularized it, was the flexibility to make it your space. What was Facebook? Literally everything the opposite. Take what MySpace did, and Facebook was the opposite. It was closed. It was utilitarian. You couldn't change anything. You couldn't create a page for your dog, your cat, your band. or any, like Literally, the things that made MySpace successful were the things that Facebook did completely differently. MySpace could, in fact, not change. Hmm. And it was that that ultimately led Facebook to build momentum and then you know, to kind of dominate the space. Look at Google when Google first launched. At the time, people thought a search engine, search engines are dead. And there were no longer any more search engines. There were portals because around this simple bar that helped you find stuff, Yahoo, Lycos, GeoCities, AT&T, WorldNet, built all these content partnerships because they thought you wanted weather and news and everything else. And yeah, you could search. And when Google came out, yes, their search was better, but it was super fast and simple. There was nothing you could do on the Google page except for search. And all those incumbent portals couldn't do that. Hmm. They could not unwind their partnerships. They could not undo the business that had helped them build the relationship with their customers. And it's, so it's, it's, I'm just giving you a couple of representative examples of if there's a gorilla in your space, what are you going to do that they can't do? And so when we think about Zendesk and what did we do, we built a completely, totally, like a completely different product experience. We built social media as a first-class citizen alongside kind of traditional channels. But what we did really in borrowing a page from the Salesforce playbook is we launched a completely different pricing model. We believed that at the time, customer support, while historically viewed as a department, in the market that we were targeting, as was Zendesk, SMBs and small and medium companies, that everybody played a role in support. There was not a big, dedicated call center. It was everybody helping out. And in that world, it didn't make sense to charge everybody for a full-time seat because the CEO would jump in for a few hours a day. The head of marketing would jump in, and it wasn't fair to charge them the full value as though they were fully using it. And so we came out with this hourly pricing model. And we knew Zendesk couldn't do it Mm. because it would have been too disruptive to their business. And that hourly pricing model wasn't just how we captured value for delivering value, but those early companies looked at us and said, holy shit, they understand our business. Hmm. They know me. They know how we work. And that was what built a ton of momentum. That's amazing. That's a great, incredible story, Alex. And very powerful and applicable lessons for, for so many of our companies around going the opposite direction than an incumbent and being smart enough to box them in. You know, it's really kind of the innovator's dilemma of how do you, how do you box them in and kind of give birth and growth to a business model that they just can't replicate. That's it's really brilliant. So things are humming along and assistly going really well. And all of a sudden you get to, you know, kind of a, a V in the road of, do I raise outside capital and keep growing and scaling the business? Or do I respond to Salesforce knocking on the door short time after you started the business? Yeah. Maybe kind of talk us through that decision-making process and ultimately what happened. Yeah. So we, we raised from True Ventures, 
1.7 million dollars in, in March. So we started the company in October. We launched it to some early customers, got really great feedback and momentum, and raised a 1.7 million dollar round in March of 2010. If you mind sharing, I, I asked Alex earlier if Mark Cuban invested in a Sicily. I'd love for you to share the answer. So because Mark believed in us when nobody else did, we were in San Diego. We didn't have any massive successes kind of prior to that. Some, you know, interesting stories, but no great successes. And because he believed in us, I felt like I always wanted to kind of, I mean, repay him. Now, he got a great return on his investment. I mean, he, he made a good amount of money. But when we started at Sisley, I didn't need his money, actually. And I wanted, I was hoping to get kind of professional VCs that would be more committed to the business. But I wanted him to be part of the journey. So we gave Mark 2% when we started the company, just proactively to thank him for what he had done for us kind of in the past and to have him along for the ride. That's really cool. Yeah. That's really neat you did that. Yeah. There's a Russian saying, which is roughly translated, giving hand is never empty. And so I just always think about you give more than you would think and you'll get more back. So that's going to serve me pretty well. I love it. So we, 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 did, the, we did the raise from True Ventures. And six months later, so now we're in December, things are going really well. And we've got some of the, some of the companies that I had a ton of respect for at the time moving to our platform, which for an entrepreneur to me is like the most exciting thing. When you look at a company and a brand from the outside that you really respect and then they value what you do, that's magical. And so Twitter, Yelp, Pandora, Spotify, 37 Signals, all these companies that I really admired switched to our support platform. And that really, I think, was the wind in our sails. And so we decided to do a quick round of financing to continue to accelerate growth. And in December, as we were about to do that, Salesforce called and said, hey, we're hearing a lot about you guys, and we'd be interested in buying you. So now we're you know, literally a month or two months in a year into the journey really early on. And they made us an offer. And I went back to my, you know, my co-founder and said, hey, what do you guys think? We'd only raised $1.7 million you know, at the time. And they kind of said, ah, you know, it's early, but if they get to this number, it's a meaningful outcome and it's life-changing for our families, and it would be a great experience to go learn at a big company because we've never done that. And so I, I went back to them, and I, I kind of gave them a directional counteroffer. And they said, no, it's too much, can't do it, but how about we invest alongside your existing investors? And actually, we didn't talk about this, but that was not a slam dunk. So we had $3 million committed, and Salesforce wanted to put another million dollars in. At the time... Our investors weren't sure if they wanted Salesforce to invest mm. because it would make it seem that they had pole position on buying the company. This is huge. This is a huge point right here. This is a huge point. Yeah. And the, so the viewpoint was that it, by Salesforce being an investor or any strategic, it turns off other companies in the market from potentially buying your company because they'll view themselves as a stalking horse, which is to say... They'll put an offer in, but this strategic will actually ultimately have right of first refusal. Right. And so... So how'd you get comfortable taking their capital? Well, we kind of went around and around on this yeah. thing a little bit. And Salesforce has moved from being just a strategic to more of a general purpose investor. Right. And I actually thought that they were the right buyer, ultimately, at mm -hmm. the end of the day. When I thought, where do I want to wind up if we do get acquired? I felt like that would be the company I want to go to because I wanted to have the opportunity to learn from Mark. So we were able to kind of get comfortable and we were able to box it in to where they had no right of first refusal. They didn't have any of the things that would make kind of a third party okay. nervous. So they invested a million dollars. We did that $4 million raise in December. Four months later, we got an inbound offer for $20 million financing. 
because the business now really started to build momentum. VCs started to hear about us. The very same VCs who all said no to me. And I <laughs> right. want to tell you guys this lesson. This yeah. is an interesting lesson. That's I forgot this. When we first went to raise money, when I told you we raised 1.7 million, 40 plus meetings, 39 no's. Wow. And we had just sold a company to AOL that Mark Cuban was part of. <laughs> right, right. Like, you'd think somebody would kind of go, <laughs> right. these guys know a little bit about what, 39 no's. Okay. And the majority of the time that we got a no, it was, we don't think the market's big enough. Hmm. We don't think the market's big enough. And I'm like, okay. So fast forward less than a year, those same VCs are now calling us, offering us $20 million for a small part of the business because this is a huge market, <laughs> right? right? In 12 months, the market had obviously taken a massive turnaround, which was not the case. And I called our investors to let them know that I wanted to do this. And that's when Salesforce called us up again. Should, do you want me to tell this story? Yeah, why not? Right? I might as well share the uh, meeting Mark story. I've, so, got, I've got a similar one, so I, <laughs> I enjoy these stories. And there's actually, actually a super powerful lesson in the story that I'm about to tell too. So we, we're thinking about doing this $20 million financing. Mark invites me to his house. I'd never met him before, including after Salesforce invested. I go to his house, and he, he actually has two houses, a proper house that he lives in and a meeting house where he takes meetings. And so I go to his house, he opens the door, and he's in a baseball cap, a t-shirt, and gym shorts. And I'm dressed up and proper and very anxious <laughs> right. about meeting, meeting this you know, superhuman. And we go in and we sit, out, sit down at this long table that he has that Scott knows very, very well. And he's got a big monitor on one end of the table facing him. And he sits behind the monitor to, so that you can only see like a <laughs> random piece of maybe his face or an arm moving the mouse around. <laughs> and you don't know what he's doing. But we have an hour and a half meeting. And he, you know, he's kind of drilling me with questions. And the meeting ends with him asking me, what questions do you have for me? And the question I asked Mark was, by the way, I had thought the meeting went terribly because he tortures you, right? <laughs> and and at, the, at the end of it, I asked him, what would you be doing differently if you were me? And this is where I think he really laid some, some simple golden knowledge on me. Mm. He said, when I... You have a lot of momentum. Clearly, customers want this. You've got some amazing companies switching over. You have two salespeople, and you're under a million dollars in run rate, in revenue. And it's because we were going carefully and thoughtfully and deliberately. And he said when he started Salesforce in his first year, he got to $25 million because he hired all these salespeople. And what he said to me that really impressed upon me at the time was that at the, at the Venn diagram intersection of a great product and a great, an equally great go-to-market, that's where a great company lives. Because a great product is not a great company. And I went, holy shit. And he's right. And like a lot of entrepreneurs, including myself, <clears throat> and many that I invest in, we're oftentimes very product-oriented entrepreneurs. And we think the product solves everything. When in fact, a lot of us underinvest in developing and building a go-to-market to build a great company. And so I left the meeting and, and I told my partners, hey guys, we're gonna raise this $20 million financing because the meeting went terribly and I got a call that said, we'd like to buy you. And they wound up buying us for you know, roughly 4X, what, 5X, what they offered four months earlier. <laughs> so it's good. That's pretty good. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's awesome, Alex. Yeah, thank you. So you spent about three years at Salesforce? Three years, yeah. Three years, okay. 
and a lot of learnings and experiences packed into that time you were so Sicily became rebranded as desk.com. Right. That might be a fun story to tell. And then you ultimately led the service cloud. Right. And I, why don't we start with the rebranding story? And then I'd love to hear just distillation of what were some of your, what were some of your big learnings at Salesforce that you then have gone on and applied at Campaign Monitor? Yeah, absolutely. By the way, in retrospect, the best decision I ever made was to have Salesforce acquire the company and to spend three years there because... There are amazing lessons that I learned yeah. that have, I, I think really transformed how I think about things. So, so the company is called Assistly, Assist L-Y, right? Because it was in customer service and, you know, a lot of names were gone, but I like that one. And so Mark acquires us and I go to his office and he sits down and, he's, and, and he looks at me and he's kind of nodding his head and he goes, I've been thinking about your brand, Alex. And I'm like, okay. He goes, I think we should rename it desk.com. And I was like, desk.com? <laughs> Why would we do that? And he said, well, you've got Zendesk. And anybody who thinks about Zendesk, I want them to think about desk. <laughs> and I was like, but Mark, desk is like what we're sitting at. Like, how do we brand desk? And he goes, think about it. But then we're going to do it. <laughs> And I was like, okay. And that was it. And that's the go. story of how we rebranded Desk. I still prefer Assistly. As a matter of fact, most of our customers called us that for a long time. Lessons. So one of the things that I think Salesforce has done incredibly well, and I'd love for you to comment on this because sure. you, know, you were there with me, is they have this alignment framework. The company is now 15, 20,000 people spread all over the world. And even when you're small, it's incredibly important to be aligned and to think about where you're going knowing that that's a living, breathing thing and it's, and it's going to evolve. And so Salesforce uses this framework, which is called V2MOM. MOM, it stands for vision and values. That's the V2. So what's your vision for the year? What are the underpinning values in support of that vision? And then the MOM is methods, obstacles, and measures. Methods are the key programs or initiatives to achieve that vision. Obstacles are what are the obstacles to achieving that method. And measures are one of the measures for each method to ensure you're being successful. The most important part of this exercise is the prioritization because that fuels investment and decision-making and everything else because you have to be really focused. So when I first went through this exercise, I was like, this is a total waste of time. Yeah. This is a lot of like, management, business school overhead. The second time I went through the exercise, I was like, oh, it's interesting. It's actually forcing me to think forward ahead of where I otherwise would. The third time that I've now gone through the exercise, I know it's an incredible management tool that we use to keep everybody honest and to focus on the most important things. And so I think figuring out what your framework for aligning and measuring is, is incredibly important. And I highly recommend kind of that one. So that, that's important. The second thing that I learned is the importance of giving back. So in everything that Salesforce does, and this is not marketing, this is genuinely runs through the lifeblood of the company, and it comes from Mark, who's very philanthropic, is this giving back program. And so we've adopted the same thing at Campaign Monitor, and it is an incredibly selfish way to get employees excited about spending time together outside of the context of work and building some of the deepest, most meaningful relationships, which translates into people who are happier, who do better work. So it's actually selfish, but at the outside, you're you know, doing good 
and doing well at the same time, which I think is just so incredibly powerful. So I'd say that was probably the, the second biggest lesson that I learned. And then the whole go-to-market thing that we talked yeah. about and how important go-to-market is to building a sustainable big business. Awesome. That's really, really good. So let's shift gears to Campaign Monitor. Yeah. So Alex leaves Salesforce to be CEO of a company called Campaign Monitor, funded by Insight Venture Partners, which was our original Series A investor at Exact Target, and Campaign Monitor, uh, today, 250-person firm with half the team in San Francisco, half in Australia. That's a very interesting leadership challenge. And I was just out to see Alex last week in San Francisco, and the office just was electric. You know, you just feel energy and culture when you, when you step into an office, and you can really tell. And I, I was impressed and blown away with just the energy, the buzz, the talent, the focus of, of the team that I was meeting. And the core values are very present throughout the office, and then, and then they're actually kind of framed in one area. And we talk a lot about core values at High Alpha, our three core values, but we talk a lot about core value development with early stage companies. And what we encourage some of our companies to, to really do is, is go through a process you know, as a team to really develop core values, really identify what makes your company special, how are you gonna use that framework to make decisions, how are you gonna use that framework to really align your team over time, and also make them unique, make them special to you. We really encourage our companies, don't come up with a list of core values that could be the same core values that you see at General Electric or you'd see at Marsh or you'd see at Finish Line or you see at Eli Lilly. You know, make them your own in your own voice. And boy, yours really spoke to me in a special way. So I'd love for you to maybe expand a little bit on the core values, develop the campaign monitor and the process in which you, in which you follow to build them. Yeah, I think values are incredibly important for all the reasons that, that you just said. When I, Campaign Monitor is the first company, you know, obviously outside of Salesforce that I've joined that I didn't start. So I, I inherited a heritage of a company. And one of the first things that I did when I became CEO, because the majority of the company at the time was in Sydney, there were 80 employees total in the company two, a little over two years ago. And 70 of them were in mm, Sydney. Wow. And so I and flew down. And you were to Sydney? Oh, no. No, no, no. no, no. Yeah, yeah, you're staying in San Francisco. <laughs> Although Sydney is stunning, oh, yeah. just too far away from the grandparents. So I flew down to Sydney, and the first thing that I did was I had a one-on-one -on -one with every employee. And I asked every employee three questions. I said, tell me what you love about the company, tell me what we can improve, and then any bonus advice for me. Okay. So universally, what do you love about the company? People said culture. But when I double-clicked and asked for more fidelity, the definitions were so varied from the things that are really meaningful, like I love to do the work that I'm doing, I really enjoy the people that I work with, to I enjoy our French chef, <laughs> which is not really kind of part of the culture. But, but that was that. The, the, the second thing was what, what can we improve was, even then it was communication, hmm. interestingly. Wow. And then the bonus advice, largely people said don't fuck it up. That was it. That was effectively <laughs> it. it. Like, please, please don't do that. And so I stood up in front of the company and kind of played it back to them. <laughs> what I heard so that they knew I was listening. And then we started to do things in the business that changed the environment of the business. We, we started to focus on the target customer. We started to hire all these new people and bring in new functions, new leaders. And with every step, because people typically don't like change generally, the response was, you're changing our culture. And so I recognized that the problem was 
not that we were changing the culture, but we didn't have core values established. Because here's what I believe. Culture should change. The culture at a 10-person company is not the same at a 100-person company and is not the same at a 1,000-person global company. Culture evolves. You want it to evolve. You want cultural diversity. You want diversity of thought. You don't want everybody to be the same. What shouldn't change are the values, which to me are the foundation for that culture. And so to disarm people from being able to say that and to give us a better platform for going forward, we went through this culture development exercise. And here's what we did. We took the management team and the co-founders and we went in a room and we sat down and we brainstormed what we thought five, top five core values of the business were in our own language and tone. And then we asked a self-nominated group of employees across geographies and tenure and department to, to self-organize and do the same exercise without any of our own influence. And then we took the output of those two, that group and the management group, put us together to see what the Venn diagram overlap was. And the good news is it was huge overlap and then it just became a matter of tuning the words. But the importance of doing that was that people didn't feel like the values were put on them. They felt like they were part of the creation process and had much more ownership of the values. So then we came out with our five values. I'll, I'll share those values with you guys, and if you want, I can share how we reiterate them in, in the day-to-day of the business. Please do. Our number one value, remembering it's an Australian heritage yeah. company, is make mum proud. Mum is how Australians would say yeah. mom. So make mum proud. And that very much talks to integrity and how we treat each other and how we behave. Imagine your mom or dad were sitting in the room as you were doing what you're doing. Would they be proud of you? That's really powerful. We've let people go because of that value. They were extraordinary engineers or individual contributors. But if you break make mom proud, you don't have a place in our company. That, so, may, that might be my favorite core value of all time. I mean, that, that just says it all. That's really, that's so really good. awesome. And you can't sh- forget and then, that. And then shifting to mom, I really, I mean, it's kind of honor the uh, Australian heritage and background. That's awesome. It's super powerful and people, and people love it. Our second uh, value is if our customers kick ass, we will too. Again, this is in our words, right? So other people, I'm sure, have customer value, but to say it in that way and to mean it when we're in a room and we're discussing a product decision, a pricing decision or something, and somebody raises their hand and goes, hey, guys, remember, if our customers kick ass, we will too, that stops us going down the wrong path, yeah. which I think is super powerful. Care about why? This is really important because everyone should know why they're doing what they're doing. Deeply understand it. Not just do it because they were told. But if you deeply understand it, then you can either agree with it or you can challenge it. And that goes hand in hand with our next value, which is create the change you want. Right? This is back to the comment that I said about you guys. You will know the business more intimately than your board. You will be at the the front line of your business. Guess what? When you become CEOs or CMOs or executives in your companies and your companies grow the people who work for you will be more on the front line than you are. And so if they understand the why and they feel empowered to create change, you're going to have a business more dynamic than if you're trying to push it down on them. That's called servant leadership. And so those two values for us are super important to empower everybody in the company. And then the last one actually, funnily enough, was the most debated one because it was misinterpreted. So we're reiterating its interpretation, but it's probably my favorite value outside of make mom proud. Okay. And that is, do less but do it best. Hmm. And what that speaks to, the spirit of it, is ruthless prioritization. Companies don't die from hunger, they die from indigestion. You try to do too many things. 
I'm telling you, especially as an entrepreneur, the amount of times I sit down with an entrepreneur and they tell me a boiling the ocean story, like, is too many. So it's about ruthless prioritization. And where there was some debate is like, you know, some, some, somebody wasn't working a lot and they were like, well, I'm doing, I'm doing less. I was like, you forgot the second part. You've got to do it best. So <laughs> That's awesome. That's great, Alex. We've got about probably 12 minutes left. Let me... I'm taking too long, aren't I? No, no, no. How's he doing so far? We guys think pretty good? All right, super. Okay. I'm always guilty of, I love asking the questions. I don't leave any time for you guys. So let me maybe drop one, maybe, maybe two more out, and then we'll, we'll get some from the crowd here. Angel investing, what do you look for in early stage entrepreneurs, early stage investments? Somebody who's genuinely passionate about what they're doing, and I want to understand the root of the passion, and it can't be about building a big company or making a bunch of money. Somebody who's focused. The biggest turnoff for me is, the boil the ocean thing, like straight away, I, I, I tune out. And somebody that I think I can not only help, but that I can learn from. Mm, nice, nice. Okay, excellent. Last one, partnering with Salesforce. You live inside of Salesforce, now you live outside of yeah. Salesforce. All of our companies have some relationship with Salesforce. Yeah. Product integration, app exchange, co-marketing, co-selling, spend a lot of money at Dreamforce. You know, kind of what words of wisdom do you have on how you think about partnering with Salesforce or how young companies in the ecosystem perhaps could think about partnering with Salesforce and trying to get the most out of that relationship. What do you recommend? It's hard. It's hard because they're a behemoth and if you're partnering with them, you're underinvested in partnering with them. I mean, the companies that have succeeded, companies like Conga and there's some others, have 15 people internally who just focus on pushing the ball on the partnership. That's not signing a partnership. That's then going into Salesforce and co-selling with the, the sales executives to help build momentum for that product. So if you're going to like truly think about partnering, it's not just trying to get a document signed or getting on the app exchange. It's all of the other work that goes behind it. Now, if you do that, you can be super successful. So I'd say that's important. The other thing I'd say is just be smart and make sure that you've got your risk distributed and that you're not only dependent on Salesforce because you never know, they might acquire a business that then is competitive with what you were doing. And if that's your only source of go-to-market, then you could be in trouble. So I think they're a great partner. I think you have to invest way more than you, and I would make sure that the business is diversified. Stay up to date with High Alpha, our portfolio companies, and the future of enterprise cloud. Subscribe to our newsletter to get portfolio updates, new company launch information, and the latest content in your inbox every month. Visit highalpha.com slash newsletter to subscribe. That's highalpha.com slash newsletter. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. Speaker Series Rewind is brought to you by High Alpha, a venture studio that designs and builds B2B SaaS companies. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also subscribe or find additional content at highalpha.com slash podcast. We'd really appreciate any reviews. It'll help us reach more awesome people like you. Catch you next time.